Good morning, everybody. Oh, gosh, that was loud. Um, thanks for the opportunity, Stephen, to preach today. Uh, I think it's probably important to acknowledge at the beginning of this that I am not an Aboriginal person. I'm not a light-skinned Aboriginal person. I'm not Aboriginal at all. Uh, I am preaching, I think, on the basis of the fact that I'm currently working with a group called the Ten Deserts uh, Project, uh, which is a project that comes under the organisation Desert Support Services, which is one of the groups in WA working on native title. And uh, Desert Support Services works very closely with the Central Deserts Native Title um, Group to help Aboriginal people uh, gain a legal access to and right to live in and work on and return to their traditional lands. Uh, and I didn't really know a lot about this whole uh, part of Australia when I started this work. Uh, I felt pretty nervous about it. I felt pretty tentative. I didn't really know my way around it. I was afraid of offending people. Um, I was afraid I would say the wrong thing. So I've embarked on a kind of crash course of, of cultural learning uh, and um, I've picked up quite a lot of things in a pretty short space of time. And I want to tell you one of them because it was, it was, a, it was a kind of a... caught me by surprise. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking there's a stray dog outside. Um, I travelled up to Newman in October last year uh, to visit an organisation called called uh, Kenyanopa Jakurpa, which took me about a month to learn how to pronounce. And they're doing incredible things with the Madu people. And I met some of the Madu people there, and I was introduced by one of them, a guy called Bakery, uh, by another woman, a white woman. And she said, uh, she, said to me, she turned to me and said, this is Bakery, and then she said, Bakery, this is Nemaru. And then she turned to me and said, you can't say your name. And I thought, what do you mean you can't say my name? It's, it's, did you not get it? My name's Phil. It's not that hard to pronounce. You know, and, and I, I, I was thinking, what have, have I done something? Have I, why can't you say my name? And I, but I didn't want to... I, I was actually too embarrassed to kind of say, why can't you say my name? So I just sat there being you know, silent, hoping it would become clear to me. And after about 10 minutes or half an hour or a few days, someone came uh, back to me and explained it to me and said, your name is Nabaru. I thought, well, that doesn't help it, you know. And she said, what it means is your name, Philip, uh, belongs to someone who has died recently, an important person in the community. And so we don't speak that name out of respect to that person. We give you the name Nabaru, which, which means basically not your name. It, so it's like, your, it's like saying not your name. So you will be known as not your name, someone else. And she said, I'm, I think we just call you Nabaru uh, Sparrow or Nabaru, you know, there's lots of Nabaru's around. If, and in the course of that day, I met a lot of white people who was, there was Nabaru cameraman, there was Nabaru Duke, whose actual name was Dave, there was Nabaru C, whose actual name is Peter, there was, there's just Nabaru's everywhere. Now, and if you don't, it takes a while to get your new name, and you, for a while you might be just be called Nabaru Nabaru, or Nabaru, which is complicated if there's several Nabaru's. So then there's old Nabaru and new Nabaru, and, and I, I kind of get it, but it took a while to get it. Um, and I, I, I have sort of become... So when I met another Aboriginal person a few weeks later, I said, I'm Nabaru Phil. Uh, and, oh, no, I didn't say Phil. I said, I'm Nabaru Sparrow. And he said, oh, Captain Jack. 
So I, I have, in that context, become Captain Jack, which is fine. But I'm telling you this story because this is a culture which most of us are deeply unfamiliar with. So, 10 Deserts works in the deserts of Australia, which are mostly in WA, Northern Territory and South Australia, and there's about 10 of them. There's actually 11, but the 11 Deserts project doesn't sound quite so cool. Uh, there's 10 of them, and there's the Tanami, and the Strzelecki, and the Sturt, and the Simpson, and the Great Sandy, and the Western, Great Victoria, probably a couple of others. Um, and 10 Deserts works with indigenous land management groups there, like the Kimberley Land Council or the Central Land Council, uh, and uh, uh, um, Arid Lands Environmental Council, uh, Council and uh, Walurpa. I haven't said that right. Al so yeah, it's, it's, these are the things I'm still learning. Anyway, it's working with all these indigenous groups uh, to help indigenous initiatives get off the ground. Ranger groups, uh, burning of country, right fire in country, in, uh, camel control, um, invasive species control, tourism, indigenous culture and knowledge, uh, and there's a couple of other things. And it's a really, really good project. Really good things are happening. Uh, these ranger teams are doing amazing things out in the desert. Uh, and when we look at the deserts, it's this massive, it's actually the largest intact um, wilderness ecosystem in the world, our deserts, uh, which means it's an area that is largely unaffected by modern human uh, industrial processes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's home, to, it's not a desert, it's full of ridges and gorges and vegetation and species and, and wonderful creatures like this thing called a night parrot, which lives on the ground and comes out at night and is a parrot. Uh, and, and, you know, rock wallabies. I guess you can work out what they do. Um, so this, this project is working in all these different regions and I'm, uh, I'm part of that and it's, it's great. So let me get into the body of the sermon. Um, mostly here in WA, Aboriginal people are simply called Aboriginal people. They're not called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because there aren't many Torres Strait Islander people here, with some obvious exceptions. But the Torres Strait Islander people are mostly in the eastern states. So, uh, and Aboriginal people, as far as I know, and there are always exceptions, these days simply like to be referred to as Aboriginal people, or if you want to take the next step, work out where they're from. So they're Maru, or they're Noongar, or they're Bijidanga, or they're Kintor, or they're you know, different, langu different language groups from different parts. There's a lot to learn. Few issues, historically and contemporarily in Australia, are as sensitive and politically charged as the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Um, it's painful, it's difficult to talk about openly, it's a source of embarrassment, it's something we don't know a lot about, non-Indigenous Australians, and it's a source of shame. A great deal of our past interactions with Aboriginal people have been dehumanising. And if you think about it, it wasn't until 67 that they were counted in the census as human beings. That says something. That says up until that point, yes, they're humanoid, but they're not worthy of counting as humans in Australia. That is a dehumanising process, and it is sin. And where there's sin, there's shame. All of humanity, and I know this goes without saying, but let's, let's just put it front and centre. All of humanity is made in God's image, in His likeness. God said, let us make people in our likeness, 
And God created people in his own image, in the image of God himself, he created them. And he said, go out, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds and every living creature. And God said, I give you the seeds and the trees that have fruit. This is yours for food. Now, this resonates much more strongly with indigenous people than it does with us. You know, you stick us out in the desert, we don't know which trees you can eat. We'd be dead in a couple of hours. We'd grind up some zamia nut and eat it and... That's it, all over. For Aboriginal people, this passage in Genesis is just uh, viscerally true. It's inherently true, yeah. The beasts of the earth, the birds of the air, the creatures that move on the ground. This is, this is, we are in an intrinsic linked relationship with this. This is our food and we are, the, we are the custodians. They wouldn't really use the word stewards, but they are the custodians of this land. This makes sense to them and it makes sense to God. And God looked at it and said, this is good. And this story belongs to Aboriginal people. And we have been slow to realize it. So, think about this for a minute. Can you see, in the face of the Aboriginal person you meet in the street or you encounter somewhere, the image of Christ? Or do you turn, without even thinking about it, based on a set of other factors... Do you turn to suspicion and blame and opprobrium? A lot of this stuff happens automatically without you even thinking about it. I was down at the West Leadville shops the other day and there was a little Aboriginal kid playing hide and seek behind the cars. And without even thinking about it, I thought, oh, where's his mum and dad? Why is he here unsupervised? What's going on? Better make sure I lock the car. And I am not proud of that thought process. But it happened automatically. And I suspect it happens for many of you. And we have to acknowledge this because if you don't acknowledge it, its power will continue to work over you. Does it help, perhaps, to think of the image of the wounded Christ when we, think, when we encounter Aboriginal people? It actually might help to think of that when you meet anyone, really, because we are all wounded in some form. You know, there's a reason why our thoughts turn this way so quickly, and it's this. Most Indigenous people, or many Indigenous people, don't do that well in urban settings. So our encounters with them occur in this kind of conflicted space. Now, before you kind of leap to some conclusions about that, think about how well you would do in a desert setting. Indigenous Australians have had thousands of years not being in indigenous, not being in, not being in urban settings, and it's pretty unrealistic to expect that in the case, in the in the course of six or seven generations, after a forcible and painful removal and relocation, in many cases, many many times, to expect that they should do well in urban settings. Think about if you were taken out of here tomorrow, away from your mum and dad and dumped out near Waluna, or Mekatharrel, or Fitzroy. And then a couple of years later, you were moved somewhere else. And then you were moved over to the eastern states, somewhere else in the desert. How well would you cope? How would you manage? And it wouldn't matter if you were there for several generations. You'd probably still not cope really well. You would have a cultural memory of where you actually are from, and you wouldn't do well in a place that was not your cultural place. 
It might, over a period of time, adapt and learn to play the game, but it would not be the place where you felt at home. And there is an order to people and things being in the right place in God's kingdom. I'm not saying that that order is, is set in stone and can't change. Of course, it's flexible, it moves, it's organic. But that process is slow. And what it means is, for us who are urban people, our encounters with Aboriginal people occur in this conflicted space. At the end of the spectrum, you know, this massive spectrum where there's all these really good interactions, most of ours occur at the end, which is, which is a conflicted space marked by this painful history, past wounds, current misunderstanding, current dislocation. It's like trying to form a friendship with someone at a car wreck, at a traffic accident. It just doesn't work. There's too much heat and anger and emotion. Imagine if you're in the middle of a fight with your wife or your husband or your kids and someone comes knocking at the door saying, Hi, I'm here to be your friend. Tell me about your history. You just tell them to get lost. It's not the right space to form a relationship. So the beginning step for us has to be to find non-conflicted ways of meeting with and engaging with meaningfully with Indigenous Australians. So, I don't need to go into, and I'm not going to go into the history of uh, the dominant power's engagement with Aboriginal people. Uh, it was sinful, it was often violent, it was dehumanising. There was sin on both sides. Aboriginal society before you know, white people came was also a place where sin occurred. Uh, and the early white settlers were quick to spot it, just quickly to spot these practices and call them, you know, inhuman. It's always easier to spot sin in others, isn't it? It's always easier to spot sin when it's looks, you know, when it's when it's different to your own. And that history has has led us to where we are today: great discrimination, incarceration rates far higher uh, for Indigenous people than for white people non-Indigenous, exclusion, shorter life expectancies, poorer health, less education, lower standards in education, etc., etc. White people, non-Indigenous Australians, aren't responsible for all of it, but we are responsible for much of it. And we need to acknowledge this, and we need to do work to correct it. And it begins by being honest about our historical sin. There is sin, and where there's sin, there's shame. And shame, unaddressed, has this great power it's transmitted unless it is dealt with. Shame, unless it is dealt with, is transmitted. Shame makes us want to hide things. We don't talk about things we're ashamed of. Guilt can lead to confession, but shame can often lead to silence and to secrecy. We know we've done wrong, but we might lack the courage or the conviction or the support to acknowledge it, and so we deny it. And that's obvious in much of the current debate about, for example, changing the date of Australia Day, it quickly becomes polarised. It quick, quickly becomes one of, look, that was in the past. We've got to move forward. It's no point engaging in self-loathing about past wrongs. Well, no, no. It, it, it's not helpful to engage in self-loathing, probably ever. But it is helpful to be honest about the past. And if you've ever been done a wrong you'll know that you don't want someone to come to you and say, look, just get over it. We're, we're dealing about the future here. Unless a wrong is held and its weight is felt, 
and it is acknowledged, you can't put it down. So, we need to be honest about the great and grievous historical wrongs visited on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and to look at this and to feel the weight of it. And until we do that, our relationships will be marked by anger and defence, dishonesty and confusion and shame. The way forward, of course, is in truth-telling and truth-hearing. All things of God bring healing and healing ultimately is always of God. This is what we are called to do, to be healers, to be listeners, to hear the truth of God's people who have suffered. It is not the time to get into arguments about the extent of this or that, to push back defensively where the facts might be wrong, or to doubt the veracity of particular details. Just unhelpful. It's time to listen, to see in Aboriginal people the image of the wounded Christ, and to listen. It's remarkably diffusing to have someone listen. You might find there's a lot of anger and heat to begin with, but you'll often find that people self-correct when you just listen. The exaggeration and the hyperbole bleed off and the relationship moves sort of away from the extreme towards the normal. We might not be personally responsible for past wrongs, but we, you and me, are responsible, we are responsible to make the present better. That is what Christ calls us to. Right, that's part one, the challenge. Part two is an encouragement, uh, and I want to ask Drew to come and read for us. Uh, I want you to just listen to this and try to insert yourself in the story in the way that the writer has.
is true. Um, that's a version of Luke 5 by Steve Aparana, who's actually a Maori Christian writer and singer. And Steve Aparana, if you read his story, comes from a background of, of uh, pretty horrific, um, pretty hard background. Racism and exclusion and, uh, you know, a real experience of being found in Jesus. Um, but his cultural experience is, is uh, much more, has much more in common with Aboriginal Australians than it does with ours, or when I say ours, with non-Indigenous Australians. When you listen to the reading and you spend some time feeling it, it's visceral, it's emotional. It's felt more than thought. Non-Indigenous Australians, who are predominantly white and of European descent, are by default people who filter life through rational, intellectual thinking lenses. Could this be real? Where's the evidence? Does this make sense? What's the logic? Show me the process. Tell me how you got to this conclusion. It's impossible for us to take off this, this heritage. It's impossible for you to do it. You can't not do it. It's part of our cultural heritage as white European people to think and feel in these ways. And the best way of explaining this is to look at Aboriginal painting and artwork and compare it with European artwork. European artwork is classical. It's composed. They have words like composition, chiaroscuro, framing, um, the interplay of light and dark, proportion, dynamic. We, I, I learn about all you, and how you analyse art. The very fact that we analyse art and we look at composition and say, oh, it's pleasing because of the rule of thirds. None of that makes sense, really, when Aboriginal people do art. And their dot paintings are extraordinarily beautiful, but they are totally different. Aboriginal people would not have invented the jigsaw. It's just something that we, you know, as white people, thought, oh, this would be fun, let's take a picture and chop it up and then reassemble it. Well, that, wouldn't, that would not make a great deal of sense in Aboriginal culture. So this, this logical process, and sometimes we think of our faith a bit like a jigsaw, you know, we can, we can describe how we, we can articulate how it works. You know, here's the edges and here's the corner piece and here's how I put it together and here's the process that I followed. That doesn't make a lot of sense to many Aboriginal people. That's not how they experience the world. But their experience of the spiritual world is deeply real. And many people, many Aboriginal people, are aware on a daily basis of the spiritual realities of the world. One of the things I first listened to when I started my job was a podcast called Wrong Skin, which is about the, the murder of, or the death and murder, suspected murder, of two Aboriginal people uh, in the Kimberley. And it's a really interesting story. It's also very tragic and sad, but it's a very interesting story. And two of the, uh, there's these two women in this, in this story, it's a very true story, who travelled to America in the, in the process and at the moment when uh, the, the young woman, um, whose name is Julie, and her hu uh, husband, Richard, um, at about the moment that they're suspected to have been killed, these two women in, who are somewhere in Los Angeles, no, 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 they're in, what's that place where all the gaming happens? Las Vegas, which is a pretty incongruous place to be. At, at about the moment where this, this, the deaths of these two people are suspected to have occurred, they turn to each other and go, something terrible has happened at home. We need to do a smoking ceremony to get the evil out of this situation. 
and they go off and find a couple of Native Americans and, and, and the Native American looks at them and says, something's, something's wrong has happened for you. Uh, we need to do a smoking ceremony. And they get together, this Native American and these two indigenous ladies from the Kimberley, and do a smoking ceremony to get the, the evil out of this situation. And you read it and you cannot help but be affected by the spirituality of this. But this is not something that most of us would think of doing or even be aware of. But they are Christian people dealing with these spiritualities, spiritual realities in their way. And if you look at the stories in Matthew 9 or in Mark 5, there's a quadriplegic healed, there's a dead girl brought back to life, there's a woman hemorrhaging who Jesus heals without even knowing really what's going on. She touches him, she is healed, he kind of looks around and goes, whoa, something's happened here, there's been a spiritual interplay, evil has departed. There's two blind men who call out to Jesus and who harass him. What you get the sense of is a world, uh, is, is, a, is of a people who see the world in terms of devils and angels, healers and evil spirits, darkness and light, immediate real forces completely enmeshed with our daily lives. And here's the thing, Jesus is really at home in that world. He gets it. And Aboriginal people, like Ben said at the beginning, get that. They get it. It makes intrinsic sense to them. You don't have to spend a long time kind of going through two ways to live. There's, a, there's just one way to live, and it's a spiritual way. So here's my encouragement to you. The Holy Spirit is no foreigner to Aboriginal people. He's no stranger. He's right there doing stuff and has been. He's known, just like Jesus is. There's a different language around it. You might not recognize it. The rhythms and the rhymes are different but they're very, very real. Be encouraged. The last thing I want to do is for you to think about what you are going to do next and to pray. There's two types of prayers we often make. One is the type one prayer, where you pray about something that you actually cannot do something about. Uh, you know, it's beyond your control. You're genuinely helpless, but you need God's help. This is not the sort of prayer you're going to be making today or next the type two prayer is the sort of prayer i want you to make type two prayers are the prayers you often hear around exam times oh god help me to do well in this exam and it is good to pray for sharp recall and good memory it is good to pray for those things but god is saying to you when you make that prayer yes and go and study it is a prayer of which you have some role in the outcome and these are the prayers that i want us to make in the next minutes so I want you to think of what you can do that is practical and tangible and achievable, is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time-bound, um, that will help you engage with Aboriginal people. Uh, Ian Robinson, who many of you know, used to do spirit journeys out to the desert. You'd meet with some Aboriginal elders, you'd sit out in the desert for a while, you'd hear some stories, you'd learn and reflect. Maybe that's a bit big of an ask. He does those, I, th I think he's still doing them every, every year. Maybe that's too big. Have you ever been to Sorry Day? Who's been to Sorry Day? Well, there's a couple of hands. We need to boost the numbers, people. Sorry Day is a really good way to get together with Aboriginal people. You don't have to agree 100% with the issues being raised. That's not the point. The point is solidarity with people who have suffered. 
to be there to learn and listen. And it's a really good non-conflictual space. I talked about this conflicted spectrum, where the conflict is here. That's a, really, that's a good place that's right in the middle to go and hear and listen and form some relationships. Go to Sorry Day this year, May 28. Are there Aboriginal people who've got kids at your kids' school? Um, has your workplace got a reconciliation action plan? Has it got a wrap? Has your workplace got a wrap? Do you actually know what a wrap is? A couple of you. It should have a wrap. A reconciliation plan was one of the recommendations made out of the Sorry Day uh, Bring Them Home report. Uh, and it's basically, it's a formal process where your workplace sits down and says, how are we going to be agents of reconciliation with Aboriginal people? Uh, and you get a couple of Aboriginal elders in, you sit down, you talk together, you might work on some things, you might plan a couple of events around Sorry Day, you might uh, have a, a cultural learning day once a year. It's pretty achievable, it's pretty modest. Where we lack informal connections, it helps to have formal connections. I get that. It's, it's, you can't just roll up to some Aboriginal person in the street and say, hey, I want to learn about your culture. It's just too weird. No one's going to do that. So start with the formal processes. Go to the formal events, use the formal mechanisms that have been established by Aboriginal people to build reconciliation. We're called to be healers. Let's do it. So there's a couple of things to think of. Sorry Day, getting a rap happening at your work, spirit journeys. Check out the Recognise movement. Check out Reconciliation Australia. There's really good things happening. There's events in NAIDOC week. Yep. I mean, we are called, to, Christians are called to be at the front, front and centre of healing relationships. That's the place for us. All right, I'm going to stop. Let's just spend a moment or two uh, thinking and making these thoughts prayers to God about what you're going to do. And then remember that James says, faith without deeds is dead. Your prayers without your action is the bit of a slap in the face.